Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Heart of Memphis, a podcast exploring the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. Each episode, we try to take you to the heart of the city. The Heart of Memphis is brought to you by a partnership between Lux Creative and Lindenwood Christian Church. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of The Heart of Memphis. We are so excited to have Mike McLaren with us here today. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us here on our episode of this podcast. Well, thanks for having me. My first podcast, so here we go. There's a first time for everything, so we're, we're grateful that you are here with us on The Heart of Memphis. You know, you and I have connected over the last year, and we've had something that we kind of runs back in our history is that we both um, have, have lived in the Chicago area, but you corrected me and said that Joliet is not Chicago. Joliet is Joliet. Tell us where you're from originally and what it was like growing up, not in Chicago, but in Joliet. Well, Joliet is decidedly not Chicago. I like to say... 40 miles and 100 light years from Chicago. It's the bluest of blue-collar towns. Uh, industry, factories, construction, and that's what I did. I grew up there, very Catholic, by the way, altar boy, and uh, middle class. My father was a custodian uh, who rose through the ranks to become a head custodian, uh, and a trip to Chicago to see the Cubs play was the highlight of my youth. Just the highlight. I I am a Cubs fan. Every prayer I've ever prayed was cashed in for 2016 <laughs> to, to, to win that World Series. You did a very poor job of reaching God's <laughs> ear until 2016. You know, my favorite Cubs story, I was in third grade in 1984 when they lost to the Padres. I was just a little kid learning to love baseball, and they got knocked out of the playoffs in a series they should have won, and I was crying, and then I kind of brought myself together, and I said, Dad, it's all right. We'll be back next year. And my dad said, no, we won't. <laughs> yeah. It was many, many years after that. But there was one magical year. Hey, we will take it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we will take it. So Joliet, you know, when I think of Joliet, I think of the Blues Brothers. I think of Statesville, the the prison there that looks like it's it's nothing but a haunted house. I think you you know it better than I do. You describe that as a, as a very blue hard blue collar hard living town, and so that that is the launching point for you. You go. You went to Joliet, West Joliet High School. Yes, Joliet West. Joliet West. Actually, you you failed to mention the other prison. There are two prisons in Joliet. One is Stateville. Stateville. Yes. It's not like Starksville. It's Starkville. And the other is the Collins Street Prison, which is right downtown. And that is for lifers and really bad folks. That's where Richard Speck was imprisoned after killing so many people. And um, the other guy, Jeffrey Dahmer, in that prison. Wow. So, and it's right downtown. Um, it, it would be to Memphis, like at the NBC building hmm. prison. That is a hard living community. It's tough. So there you, th- you thrive at, at basketball and that becomes a kind of a launching pad for you, not only athletically, but academically. And you make your way all the way from Joliet to, to New Haven, Connecticut, to, to Yale. So what, what, what took you from that hard living town all the way out there to the East Coast? Well, I had, I had great coaching, and uh, you, anybody listening to this can't see me, but I'm a six-foot 
white American, and my future in basketball was limited by my lack of ability to jump. Uh, but I was a good shooter and got noticed by several schools, uh, Notre Dame, one of them, and that would be in keeping with my Catholic tradition, uh, the Air Force Academy, the other, the other, and then Yale sent a letter. And there was one Yale grad in Joliet, and he called Yale and said, this kid can play basketball. And um, I visited all three schools. Interestingly, at Notre Dame, I scrimmaged with the team, which was probably highly illegal, but <laughs> I scrimmaged with them. And there were, they had a guard named Austin Carr, who was one year older than me. And even in the exuberance and cockiness of an 18-year-old, I knew I could never play as long as he was at Notre Dame. I just knew that, and he was awesome. Um, then I went to the Air Force Academy, and that was an interesting interview. First time I'd ever been on a plane, and you had to eat square meals where you raise your spoon to 90 degrees and then come in, and that didn't appeal to me much. <laughs> and my father said, if you have a chance to go to Yale, you need to go to Yale. Uh, I said, Dad, how are we going to afford that? He said, oh, you'll manage. <laughs> <laughs> you'll manage, Mike. You'll get a loan, something. You'll work. So I ended up there, and it absolutely changed my life. How did Yale change your life? Well, my sister... My older sister had gone to nursing school at Bradley, and I visited down there, and it it really was like Joliet. Peoria was like Joliet. Yale was nothing at all like Joliet. Uh, one of the first days of, of class, my roommate brought home some uh, marijuana. I recognized it. I had never, ever seen it before but I knew what it was and I said Mark you're going to have I'm going to have to turn you into the police and he said you don't you don't want to do that I said yes I do I'm here to play basketball and secondarily get an education but I can't tolerate drugs and he said Mike if you turn me in if you call the police they'll call the campus police campus police will say we got a complaint there's marijuana up there and we'll be up next Thursday at 1 o'clock to inspect your room. Then we won't have any marijuana here, and you and I won't be friends. And uh, it was a harsh lesson on differences in the world. And he became my very, very good friend and uh, kept smoking dope. <laughs> so... <laughs> Oh, I can see how that could be be a, a an eye opener. So yeah, yeah. It, it big, was big difference. It was 1970. Yeah. Well, it was 68 to 72, and uh, all across America, life was changing, mm -hmm. and uh, that included drug use and Vietnam War. We invaded Cambodia by mistake, and that created problems. In fact, three of my four years at Yale, we did not take tests. Uh, and at no time at Yale did I get grades. It was all pass-fail. You couldn't, you couldn't even fail my last two years because they assumed if you got in Yale, you were smart enough, where if you failed a course, it wasn't 
because it's your fault, it's our fault, so we'll just give you an incomplete. So you had pass and incomplete my last year, which was made it tough to get into law school <laughs> uh, without a grade point average. I wish I would have had that scale my entire educational process. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> now, you have, you've shared with me before that there was a, a – a a big upset that you all had when you were playing basketball at Yale. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, the Ivy League was, and I think still is, pretty competitive. But my sophomore year, we flew to Hawaii to play in the Rainbow Classic. And the first game was against Hawaii because they thought, well, that we can beat Yale and move on. But we beat them pretty handily. And then we beat University of San Francisco, which was a minor upset. And then we played LSU, which had Pistol Pete Maravich in the lineup. And uh, I remember before the game, he was fantastic. He was just 6'5", quicker than me or anybody my size. Great shooter. Before the game, the coach said, okay, look, Mike, when Pistol comes past half court, you pick him up because he's got unlimited range he can shoot from anywhere and then when not if when pistol beats mike then jimmy morgan our star you pick him up and then when he gets by jimmy terry finn you gotta pick him up and thatcher you're gonna close And we had a seven foot center john whiston who was a wise guy and he said so coach we got four guys on pistol. I guess I got the rest of the team, the other four guys. I got them, Coach, no problem. And But we went out and we beat them 97-94 without a three-point line. Not much defense was played in those days. So we were uh, Rainbow Classic champions and had a great time with it. Well, this podcast is not about sports, but we keep coming back to it in almost every yeah. conversation, and it may have something to do with the host. But I, I grew up knowing from my father, who was it made me a diehard University of Kentucky basketball fan, and he says Pistol Pete is one of the top five college players ever. 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 And I agree with that. Yep. I mean, he he had 35 points. I held him to it. Well, yep. I and – actually, he had 34. I and three or four other guys held him to 34. And you won. That's all that matters. So you said you had a hard time getting into law school. You do make your way back to Chicago. You go to Loyola, who's speaking of getting to the Final Four and making a run in the tournament. Uh, so what, what took you back to Chicago for law school? I, I always assumed I would work in Joliet or surrounding environs. You know, it was a happy household, and I had friends there, and I liked the Midwest. I loved the Midwest. So I just assumed that. Uh, plus, I got into Loyola, <laughs> and that made a difference. Uh, so, I, and I loved it there. I made really good friends there um, and loved being there. So. so my favorite question to people that are not from here is, how did you get to Memphis? I got a job. <laughs> it was pretty simple. I got a job. There was a Yale graduate named Jared Blanchard who was – uh, a city hero. He marched with the Martin Luther King uh, uh, march, the sanitation strike. He was a city council member, and he was one of the very few Caucasians who marched in the King March, and especially being on the city council. 
very influential in my life. And he called me and said, you want to try lawsuits? I said, yeah, that's all I want to do. And he said, you can stay in Chicago, and you'll probably try a lawsuit in five years, seven years. You come down to Memphis, and I've got a small firm, and we'll throw you in the fray, and you'll be trying lawsuits your first year here. So I drove down, and I liked it. It was February in Chicago, uh, eight degrees or something like that. It was snow everywhere, and it was one of those glorious February days where it was 65 in Memphis. And it was a cinch. It was a no-brainer. You know, you're here. I'm here. I know. I moved down here from the west suburbs of Chicago. Yeah. And I remember when I came down here to interview, and it was beautiful, and I drove back up all the way to Chicago, and I couldn't even get my car in the driveway because so much snow had fallen. I've just parked at the edge of the street because yeah. I couldn't. And, I mean, I went out and shoveled it the next morning, but I was like, all right, God, I think I can do this. <laughs> yeah. God was leading you to warm weather. Yes, amen. That's the key. That's one theological belief I really have. Yeah. Yeah. I can't really argue that one. I can't really argue that one. All right, so I've, I made a joke in the pulpit many weeks ago about uh, lawyers, and you still have continued to return to worship here. But I, I wanted to talk about what it's like to practice law. So we, you know, we've got a lot of ways we can take this question. Uh, what What is the least appreciated part of what you do that people don't recognize? What's the hardest part of your job? What do you do that most people wouldn't recognize? Take us inside what it's like to 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 fight lawsuits, as you sure. Say. Actually, what you do and what I do has a similarity. And the reason I say that is because, and I'm going to give you a little shout-out here, the reason my wife and I have returned to church is uh, your sermons are interesting, but I think, in part, our jobs are the same. You give whoever you're talking to a little comfort, a little peace of mind, so that they go out feeling uh, a little bit better about their situation. I represent a lot of folks who come in scared out of their wits because they're in the legal system. You talk to a lot of people scared out of their wits because they might um, not be headed to a good destination at death. Uh, For me, it's headed to a good destination at the end of the trial or during the litigating process. So what we do in a non-technical sense is try to instill confidence in the client that whatever the result, they're going to have the best chance possible with me as their lawyer. And the, the vagaries of a trial are impossible. I've lost cases that I should have won. I've won cases that I had no business winning. You talk to the jury, and you try to level with them, try to tell them the truth, and forget all the complexities. There's a term, legalese, and I try to avoid any legalese when I'm talking to a judge or a jury. I think they should coin a term called Christianese, it gets used. Really? Yeah, in, in my business, and yes. I thought I was making that up. No, it is. We call it Christianese. Yeah. And I like your sermons because they avoid Christianese. Okay. 
they can be a little irreverent, I think, at times. And from a reverend, that's probably <laughs> not that's probably not a good thing to do. But uh, it's like legalese. Um, you can tell a jury subsequent to that event, or you can say, and you know what happened next? Or you, and there's a couple books about avoiding legalese. You know, avoid the whereas and the therefores and the subsequent to, and the, as a predicate thereof. I mean, I can talk legalese, but it doesn't get you anywhere, just like you can probably talk Christianese. I My can't. daughter is a preacher, yes. as you know, and she and I have talked about that, and she abhors Christianese. Mm-hmm. She wants to talk to you. So you mentioned that. I was going to bring that up later. Your daughter is a, a pastor at a very large church in, in California, um, and you've said this joke many times. How in the world did your daughter become a minister? Because as you said, it wasn't because of your spiritual insight. It was because of my profound religious influence on her. <laughs> no, I was uh, pretty shocked. You know, my son turns out to be a lawyer. My daughter turns out to be a minister. I was pretty shocked when Annie uh, went, came home from young life, and uh, she was taken. She was really enraptured by the idea of religion and God and Christianity. And I just went along for the ride. Uh, and I marveled at her ability to to preach and reach people. You know, She's on the internet every Sunday, Jeff, so I'll put in a plug and um, you know, it's, uh, it's a, a good gig for her. Yeah. It really is. I knew about her church before I knew who she was in connection to you. So I'm, I am quite aware of her impact and of her ministry. Yeah, so. yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. I'm very proud of her. I was, I was a little uh, nervous when she was here. That was it the summer. To, yes, it was it, the summer. To hear me preach, and I was like, uh oh. Yeah, he better be on. His I best better be behavior. on my best She's behavior. She's a fuller grad. Yes, you know, I feel that way around my son sometimes because he's a lawyer, and I get nervous around both my kids. Yep. I can I can I can understand that. So you're practicing law here in Memphis. Uh, walk us through kind of the transitions that you've had professionally. You had a, a, a connection that brought you down here to Yale that clear, from Yale that clearly mentored you and gave you the opportunities you wanted right out of the gate. Where has the the twists and turns of the legal profession taken you now that you're I'm not saying you're going to retire next week, but you're 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 closer to the end than you are the beginning for sure. A guy last night used the term my runway is short which uh, I'd never heard before. Um, but I'm not going to retire for my partner's sake if they ever hear this. I'm not going to retire soon. I was with that firm. I joined down here for three years, and it was a great base for me. But my mentor was getting older, and he and I both joined another firm, um, uh, Thomas and Hendricks. And I was with them for 18 years, and... Liked it a lot, tried a ton of lawsuits, got to do what I wanted to do. There's nothing like starting a jury trial. And anybody who tells you that they're not nervous uh, is lying or isn't a very good lawyer. You should be nervous. You should be nervous before you give a sermon. I am. You you definitely should. I am. And if you weren't, you should quit. I completely agree. I still get butterflies before yeah. I get up to preach. Yeah. And... Um, I did have motions set tomorrow, 
And I would be nervous taking this time uh, and not preparing for the motions. It's preparation is key. But I like doing it. I haven't done it hardly at all in the last two years because of COVID. Um, but then 22 years ago, uh, Steve Black, my law partner, and I started our own firm. And we've grown. We've got 13 lawyers now. But I'm still trying lawsuits all the time, representing doctors in malpractice cases, representing big companies in um, commercial disputes, and representing a lot of vaccine. People have been injured by vaccines. And please, let me caution that I am a pro-vaccine guy. All my kids, all my grandkids have gotten vaccines. But like point. Zero 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 one percent of people are going to be injured by vaccines. If you get a flu shot, which you should, uh, there's a remote chance that the shot will be delivered too high on your arm. Somebody at Walgreens or CVS, and you'll get a rotator cuff problem. I probably have 30 of those cases across the country right now. And the government, you can't sue Walgreens can't sue CVS, you can't sue a doctor or a nurse, but you can make a claim in the Federal Court of Claims in Washington. There's probably a hundred lawyers across the country who do that. Some of them are minor. The government may say, yeah, you got CERVA, that's what's called, shoulder injury related to vaccine administration. And you might get $35,000, $100,000. If you lose the use of your arm, 150. Uh, there are other, much worse cases where kids will have an incredibly rare reaction and stop in time. They'll get seizures or strokes. And those are tragic. And the government funds the child's care the rest of his or her life. So I've got a lot of those cases. Uh, the most fun cases for me at least, are medical malpractice cases because they're interesting and passionate. You know, Not like a divorce passion, <laughs> but uh, still passionate. Still passionate. Well, one of the... Uh, one of the particularities that you have that I, I want to explore, because I, I only know what I've read online, you have a movie career. You are a, you are an actor with an IMBD. Do I have that right? Uh I, I be in, I don't know. I, like I said, I'm, it's on Wikipedia, so it's true. You're close. I'm You're close. close. Yeah. So a, before I butcher the uh, yeah, IMBDB, thank you. Yes. Um, before I butcher it even more or get into Christianese, <laughs> walk us through that. How did you get into it? And I, 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 w- I want to hear all about it. Well, in 1992, gosh, that's 30 years ago, uh, if my math is right. Uh, I played basketball at the YMCA downtown, most lunch breaks, and there was a sign up that said, if you look 40 and can play basketball and are a lawyer and think you can act, come tomorrow for a tryout for a movie shooting in Memphis called The Firm. And I went through that checklist, and because my hair, or lack thereof, is very similar to yours, Uh, I have always looked 40. I've always played basketball. I was a lawyer, 
And I had no idea if I could act. I'd never acted before. So I showed up the next day, and there was Tom Cruise. And he was doing the auditions. And Tom Cruise is a smashingly good-looking guy, but he's probably about 5'7 at his best. And a bunch of my buddies were trying out, and they were all taller than me. And without even a word, he said, uh, what's your name? And I said, Mike McLaren. He said, can you act? And I said, I don't know. And he said, can you play basketball? I said, sure. And he said, well, let's play a little bit. And he's 5'7 and never played. And uh, at the end of a 10-minute one-on-one, he said, okay, you're hired. I want you to do this. Can you find three other friends about your size or shorter? Because he did not want to look small. About your size or shorter. That was not hard, calling three six-footers and say, hey, you want to be in a movie with Tom Cruise? That was easy. So then it grew from there, and I was in A Time to Kill next with Sandra Bullock, which was a lot of fun. <laughs> a lot of fun. The director came over and said, you have one job. I want you to pretend like you want to go to bed with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> and... Uh, I tried, and he said, can you not act at all? Come on, pretend you want to go to bed with her. Look at her, and she's standing right there. And he went into excruciating detail about how attractive she was. And he said, just act. Every person here wants to go to bed with her. Why can't you act like you want to? And I did my lecherous best uh, and got the part. And it's a... (laughs) It's a great part. She wrote me a little note after the thing on the back of her picture, selfie that well, selfies weren't invented yet, but it was a Polaroid, and it said, to the best drooling lech I've ever worked with. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. And then it went on from there. I was in five other movies. The casting directors would just call me and say, okay, you want to be in this role. You want to do this. You want to be here. Those were the two. Well, Actually, The People versus Larry Flint was uh, a famous movie. It was, it was either nominated or in the nominations. It's a great movie not to be seen by any child under 16, although I took both my kids to the world <laughs> premiere, which was in Bartlett, believe it or not. Oh, uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Woody Harrelson was Larry Flint, and he's not the guy you see on Cheers. He's uh, a tough character. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I did eight movies, and then they just went away. I, I, they quit making movies in Memphis. I didn't travel. I went to Mississippi for one. Um, and I just sort of had my run of eight movies. Outstanding. Yeah, it was fun. That, that, that does sound fun. Yeah. I love the, I love the John Grisham connection. That's, that's about as Memphis and, as you can get. Yes. So. Yeah, he insisted that uh, his movies be made in Memphis. And so he did um, The Rainmaker here, mm-hmm. and my wife has a little scene in that. And then a guy named Rob Lurie did a movie that was really good uh, with Alan Alda. And my wife got me that job. Uh, he wanted to do a shoot in her courtroom, and he said, uh, can you act? And she said, no, I cannot act. And he said, well, I'd like you to be in a movie if you want to be in a movie. She said, no, but my husband's an actor. 
And so he called me. It's kind of a funny story because his casting director called and said, we need a Secret Service agent, and you need to be 6'4 and about 210. And I said, that's me. And Diane came home, and I said, I, I got to grow three inches and lose five pounds by Monday. <laughs> and uh, she was in the movie. She did a little wave. Uh, that was the extent of her acting. Uh, and he was, the director was there. And the director came up to her, and he was wearing a Patriots T-shirt. And she thought he was a defendant in her courtroom. And I told her, that's why you never get any movie roles, Diane, because you don't recognize the director. That's the director. So it was a fun run. That sounds like it. Well, you have referenced one of the last things I wanted to bring up. You are a lawyer married to a judge. Is that illegal? Is that a conflict of interest? Did you get a, a special waiver from, from the Supreme Court? <laughs> I think she was drunk when she said yes. Um, but I would not want to appear in her court. She was a federal magistrate judge here in Memphis. And uh, it was easy to declare a conflict of interest because uh, I, th- I have a hunch she would hold me to a higher standard of lawyering. Uh, absolutely. But it's been great. We shared a lot. We've been married 16 years now. And we shared a lot of lawyer stories. And we always talk business. She was interested in my cases. I was interested in her cases. So it's it's been a great time being married to her. And so she is just retired from the federal bench. Yes, she retired May 4th of 2019 during uh, 2020. 20. She had uh, two months of COVID service where she would conduct hearings in our kitchen via Zoom. Wow. And uh, there'd be a defendant in jail in a jumpsuit, and he would say to her, I would occasionally listen, he would say to her, you don't get what it's like in here. And she'd be sitting there in her judicial robe with house slippers on, and she'd say, you don't get what it's like out here. It's bad everywhere. So she retired shortly thereafter. And in honor of her, what did you name your new dog? Oh, (laughs) we have a Bernice Mountain dog, and the dog is named... Judge, and for forty years as a lawyer, I've heard Mr. McLaren. I've heard enough. You can sit down, Mr. McLaren. Sit down. Now I get to say, Judge, sit. <laughs> judge, you sit. Judge, I've heard enough. I was on a Zoom call in a hearing with a judge here in town at my home office. We were all on Zoom, and my dog walked in, and started barking. I said, judge, be quiet. Judge, judge, get out of here. And the real judge said, Mr. McLaren, I beg your pardon. And I started laughing and said, judge, I wasn't speaking to you. I was telling my dog, the judge. And I thought, I'm getting in deeper and deeper (laughs) here. So uh, we named the dog judge. You named the dog judge. Yep, yep. So finally, there is an organization that you belong to that you're not allowed to talk about. Um, are you a member of Skull and Bones? Not allowed to talk about it, Jeff, and uh, you better get a bodyguard having <laughs> mentioned the name Skull and Bones. No, I, I am, and um, it was a group of 
you can tell how Yale has changed and how the world has changed. It was a group that characterized itself as choosing 15 male leaders in 1972. Yale quickly went co-ed, and now I think there are eight women picked, not by quota, there are no quotas, but uh, there are definitely women in the organization. It's a great organization for two reasons. And in fact, I've always thought that churches should have small groups like this. You, you have a day, you're surrounded by 14 people, some of whom you know, but others you don't. And you have to give two talks during the, the year. The first is your life story, your LH, your life history. And you have to talk about growing up, where you grew up, why you are like you are, and you're only 22. But you really get to know people. You do it in a dark room with candles, and anybody can ask you questions, okay, anybody. And then you give a second talk called your CB, and that's connubial bliss. You're 22 years old, and you talk pretty frankly to a group of your peers about uh, your love life, your romancing life, your dating life, your orientation, your attitudes. And remember, you're in a dark room and people can ask you questions, right, flat out. And um, during the course of that, I learned that two of my clubmates who were very close friends were gay. And that just came out. It came out among your 14 best friends. And I'll tell you, you make 14 best friends when you give that kind of revelations about yourself. Interesting dynamic. I don't know if there's anything like that in church practice, but it would be interesting. One of the things I know about church is it's at its best when there's safe vulnerability and we're terrible at it. Well, I I was vulnerable then yep, I, giving those two talks. I believe you. So, well, Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to come and share with us on this episode of the Heart of Memphis. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for being up there every Sunday and uh, bringing me inch by inch closer to being a believer. It's a tough job you have. It is a tough job I have, but I'm, I'm grateful for every inch that you move, and I'm grateful for your friendship. Me too. Thanks. We want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of The Heart of Memphis. Hopefully you have joined us as we have explored the contours of the arts, commerce, culture, and faith. I think in this episode we have taken you to the heart of the city.